Hey, it's Scott Orner, Cruise Consulting, and thanks for joining us on Founders and Friends for another awesome podcast. Let's give a quick shout out to the Cruise Consulting accounting team. We're very fortunate. We have a ton of people at Cruise who work on the monthly books for our clients and get them all set up, due diligence ready, rocking every month, answering all the clients' questions, making all those adjustments. And there's no better moment for a founder and for us, really, when founder says, hey, I think I'm going to get a term sheet. Are my books ready for diligence? And we get to say, yes, they are. Fire away. Send them over. Give them access. That is a great feeling. It's the feeling that lets us know we've done a job very well done. And nothing is better than watching that cash hit the bank account. So if you are a venture-backed startup, you're going out to fundraise, maybe check us out. Check us out at cruiseconsulting.com. We love what we do. At taping here, I think we have 575 clients. Clients raise over a billion dollars this year. So we know what we're doing. And hopefully we can help you be successful in your fundraise. All right, let's get to the podcast. Thanks. So when your troubles are mounting in tax or accounting, you go to Cruise Founders and Friends. It's Cruise Consulting. Founders and Friends with your host, Scotty Orn. Welcome to Founders and Friends Podcast with Scott Orn at Cruise Consulting. My very special guest is Kareem Saleh of Fair Play AI. Welcome, Kareem. Thanks, Scott. Great to be here. We are longtime friends or... or uh, collaborator, friends and collaborators, yeah. Collaborators from the Zest Finance days. And uh, you have built a super cool company. We also had the pleasure of your wonderful partner in life, Melissa, working with Cruise for a while. So I feel like we're, we, we're living parallel lives here. And maybe you can start off the podcast just by telling everyone how you had the idea for Fair Play and how you got going. Yeah, so in the winter of 1977, <laughs> uh, my parents arrived in Chicago. Uh, they were immigrants fresh off the boat from North Africa. Wow. And like so many immigrants, they dreamt of starting a new life in America and wanted to start a small business. They had graduate degrees, they spoke fluent English, and yet no bank would lend to them. So they really only had one choice, which was to go to work and try to save up the money. Uh, my mom ended up taking a job working at a chemical processing plant. And it turned out that they had lax safety practices oh there. And one day there was an accident. Uh, and I will never forget being four years old and seeing my mom crying in a hospital bed and just like wanting to cheer her up. And so in my like youthful exuberance, I was like, mom, when you get better, maybe we could go celebrate by going to great America. And I will never forget the pit in my stomach, even as a four-year-old, when she looked at me and said, I can't go to great America. I'm going back to the toxic chemical plant so we can save the money to start this business. It's like re real uh, life, real entrepreneurship, real supporting your family. That's a, that's a real, you know, yeah. it was like at that moment that I learned what it feels like to see someone you love being treated unfairly. Uh, and as I grew older, uh, I saw that in many, uh, aspects of American life, opportunity is not distributed yeah. fairly. Uh, and when folks don't get fair access to stuff like credit and healthcare, uh, it, it impacts families for generations. Uh, and so that experience set me on a path of increasing access to credit for people who had been shut out of the system. Uh, and it got me asking, how can we do a better job of underwriting inherently hard to score borrowers? 
thin files, no files, recently arrived immigrants who don't resemble the traditional conception of what a quote unquote good applicant yep. looks like. Yep. And so that work uh, took me across the globe to sub-Saharan Africa and Latin America and Eastern Europe and the Caribbean. Uh, I spent a few years at an unfortunately named mobile wallet startup called ISIS oh, no. that was mercifully, yeah, mercifully rebranded Softcard and sold to Google. And then I spent several years uh, in the Obama administration at the State Department and the Overseas Private Investment Corporation uh, before landing in Silicon Valley at venture-backed startups that were tackling these problems of financial inclusion. That's incredible. What happened, you kind of got to the point where you're like, you know, I need to take take this into my own hands and just start a whole new company to do this? Like the, the vision was that clear to you? Well, it was, it was really two things. The first was in the course of that work, I got visibility into the underwriting practices of the most prestigious financial institutions in the world. And what I was like quite surprised to find, Scott, is that like, even at the commanding heights of American finance, global finance actually, the underwriting methodologies were extremely rudimentary, certainly by Silicon Valley yeah. standards, uh, and all of the decisioning systems being used for underwriting, for pricing, for marketing, for collections, exhibited disparities against people of color, women, and folks from other historically disadvantaged groups. And part of the reason that really shocked me is that, you know, ostensibly coming out of the civil rights era, we have laws that prohibit that kind of discrimination. And so it like really got me wondering, like, how is it possible on the one hand that bias in lending is illegal and yet it is ubiquitous? Uh, and when I started kind of surveying the landscape, I, I found that uh, the way that that is made possible is through something I kind of jokingly refer to as the fair lending industrial complex, which is fancy consultancies and law firms that financial institutions rely on to try to justify their discrimination rather than do anything to actually make their lending practices any fairer. It's almost like the smoking, the tobacco companies deciding it's better to pay lawyers than to actually change the product like that. I mean, I don't, it's, it's kind of that extreme, right? Like that's how it works. And just like, uh, just like smoking, it, you know, not only is that kind of morally outrageous, but it's also substantively unnecessary, right? Uh, and so I had been, I had been kind of toying with this idea for a while. And then it was really kind of in June of 2020, when people took to the streets in the, you know, to protest the murder of George Floyd. And as the Black Lives Matter movement was sweeping across the country, it seemed to me that like this issue of systemic bias just became too deafening to ignore. Yeah. Uh, so Especially if I, you're a person who's so, you, you're talent, you're so talented, it's almost like feeling the call, right? Like you, you're, you know, in your heart that you're someone who act, can actually put a dent in this. So it's almost like you have, did you feel like you had an obligation to do something? Well, you know, I felt like I had an obligation. And then I also had the very good fortune of having over the course of my career worked with some fantastic yeah. AI yeah. technologists. Uh, and so, you know, I think many people, uh, you know, in June of 2020 were asking themselves, what, 
what part, what role can we play uh, to address uh, systemic bias? And as I started kind of looking at that and looking at my network, I started spending more and more time uh, with my co-founder who had been a longtime friend and collaborator like you, Scott, a fellow named John Merrill. And John, John had built AI systems at Google and at Microsoft. And we began experimenting with ways of harnessing AI that could kind of be, uh, you know, that could drive more positive outcomes for historically disadvantaged groups. And so we started building kind of, you know, uh, you know, uh, MVP, MVP type AI underwriting products. Uh, and that put us on a path to doing the research and development that eventually became fair play. And our, our thesis was that like left to their own devices, algorithms that make high stakes decisions about people's lives will replicate and possibly even worsen the yeah. discrimination of the past. It's, it's, to borrow an analogy, is it like, you know how like when people kind of watch certain videos on YouTube and it, YouTube's algorithm, not to pick on YouTube, this is how a lot of algorithms work, but just it starts showing them the progress, progressively more extreme versions of those videos. And it put kind of pushes them down a, the the black hole. Kind of, that's kind of what the poor financial algorithms can do, right? Like you push, you put someone in a materially worse situation over and over again, and they end up in a much worse situation. Is that is that accurate? It is. It is exactly the right analogy, Scott. In fact, you know, the, one of the conclusions that we came to as we started doing this work is that a key part of the problem is that algorithms are traditionally given a single mm. objective uh, and they relentlessly maximize that objective, right? So you see this most clearly with Facebook, you know, the uh, objective given to the Facebook algorithm is to maximize yeah, totally. your engagement. And so that, that algorithm is going to do that. It's going to, right. It's going to seek to maximize your engagement, even if the content it's showing you to keep you engaged is bad yeah. for your health or bad for society. Uh, and as we kind of looked around, we thought we sort of took a look at Tesla uh, and we were like, you know, Tesla has a very interesting solution to this problem. Right. Because you could imagine, uh, you know, if Elon programmed the neural network that powers the self-driving cars to just get you from point A to point B. The car might do that while driving the wrong way down a one-way street, while blowing through red lights, while endangering pedestrians. Uh, what Elon did that was so clever was to give his algorithms two targets, right? Get, from, get the passenger from point A to point B while also respecting the rules yeah. of the road. And so, and so we looked at the Tesla example and we were like, why can't we do this in financial services? Why can't we give the algorithm an objective of predicting default accurately while also minimizing disparities between groups? It's really amazing. And I think the, the craziest thing about this is you said you said you were like seeing uh, the underwriting standards at like or the approaches at the highest, the best, the quote unquote best institutions of American credit and things like that. But really, mostly what those people care about or those institutions care about is actually just making money. You think you hope. Right. And so it sounds like fair play in just our previous conversations, like fair play can actually make them more money, too. It's like it's not just like a pick A or B. It's like, hey, we can do those two objectives you're setting 
comes with the benefit of a third objective or third conclusion, which is, hey, we're actually going to make more money for you. You should embrace this. Uh, that's exactly right. And so what what we have been able to prove, so what we do is we go to financial institutions and we say, hey, you have an algorithm in place. You're happy with your algorithm. You've invested a lot of time and effort and prestige uh, into deploying that algorithm. Fair enough. But all of the folks that your algorithm declined, send yeah. them to our, AI, yeah. our algorithm that's been tuned with AI fairness methodologies. Uh, and we're going to take a second look at the folks that your algorithm rejected to see if there are dimensions on which those individuals resemble other good applicants you approved. And what we find, Scott, is that 25 to 33% of the time, the highest scoring black, brown, and female applicants that get declined perform as well as the riskiest white oh men God. that get approved. 25 to 33%. That's crazy. That's a lot of people. Yeah. And so that's, that's in, I can totally visualize those conversations. Like some, there's someone at the bank or credit union or whatever, like was responsible for building these algorithms. And I'm sure they have like these moments of like, almost like self-conflict, right? They're like, well, I'm super proud of what I built. But then when you show them the data, they have to have, they, like, what's, what's that conversation like? Are, do they, are they quick to realize what's happening or they, do they fight it? Like, what's it like? Yeah, well, you know, I think nobody who builds these algorithms uh, that I've encountered is a person of yeah. bad faith. Uh, what, they're, what they're running up against are limitations in data yeah. and mathematics. And for many years, really uh, uh, since the um, laws that were passed in the wake of the civil rights era, we have tried to achieve fairness in lending through blindness, you know? So like we uh, try to, we don't look at whether a person is uh, a female uh, or, you know, what racial background or, or ethnic background they're from. We try to isolate variables that, are, that seem to be objective or yep. neutral. And in that way, we try to achieve fairness yep. through blindness. But all you gotta do is look at the black home ownership rate and see that it is at the same dismally low levels that it was at the time of the passage of the Fair Housing Act to see that trying to achieve fairness through blindness hasn't yeah. worked. Now, what's different about some of these new AI fairness techniques is that they actually take consciousness of your demographic uh, membership into account. And let me give you one example of how uh, that can be helpful. So like one of the variables that we see all the time in credit underwriting models is consistency of employment. How consistently are you employed? And you look at a variable like that and you're like, well, that has a reasonable relationship to credit worthiness. I mean, after all, if you're inconsistently employed, how are you ever gonna pay back a loan? Uh, at the same time, consistency of employment is always going to discriminate against women between the ages of 20 to 45 who take time out of the workforce to totally. start a family. Uh, so maybe, so maybe what you, you know, you want to tell your algorithm, hey, there's a population out there who will exhibit somewhat inconsistent employment. Don't necessarily hold that against them. Look to see if there are other dimensions on which they resemble good applicants that you approved. And lo and behold, what you might find is, well, that individual, that applicant has a number of professional licenses, which we know is a great credit signal. 
They've got great stability of yeah. residence, which we know is a great credit signal. They've never declared bankruptcy. They always pay their bills on time, which we know is a great credit signal. Uh, and so one of the challenge, I mean, the conversations that we have with the lenders, I feel for these lenders because on the one hand, we tell them you're not allowed to discriminate. On the other hand, we tell them you're also not allowed to ask, is this applicant black? Is this applicant a woman? And so to date, uh, I think that like no one has been making these kinds of tools uh, for financial institutions who are disposed uh, to doing uh, to being fairer to historically disadvantaged groups. Uh, but the good news is that the technology has advanced considerably yeah. uh, and the regulators have signaled uh, more of a willingness uh, to allow you to use that information if you're doing it for the purpose uh, of improving outcomes for folks who've been historically left out of the system. That's really cool. So your algorithm could look and see like, oh, there's a population over here, presumably women, or a, a lot of them are probably women, and drill down and run separate types of analysis on them and come up with like that 33% of that pool is actually a great borrower for the for the lender. Like it's kind of, that's, that's the heart of what Fairplay is doing. That, that's exactly right. We, we run, we re-underwrite all of the declined applicants to try to identify the dimensions on which they resemble good applicants who were approved. And what we find, as I said, is 25 to 33% of the time, the folks that are, you know, just on the other side of a lender's kind of disapproval threshold uh, would have performed at least as well as the riskiest folks they approve. That's so cool. And you can, and that sort of like makes intuitive sense, right? I mean, like, you know, you walk into a financial institution and they tell you, hey, listen, our FICO cutoff is a 680. We don't approve anybody below a 680. Well, you know, you telling me that there aren't some 679s and 678s who are headed for 685 and 690? Of course there are. Uh, and there are and there are 690s who are headed for 650, right? Uh, and so being able to kind of tease that out at the margin uh, is really where we're able to create a lot of value and a lot of fairness for our customers. Hey, it's Scott Orn, and we're going to take a quick break from the podcast to give a shout out to the cruise tax team. Gosh, it's so nice to have an in-house tax team. I can't even tell you. Uh, we have some really amazing professionals on the team. It's over, I think it's 13 people now. And we do everything from your federal state income tax return, state franchise tax filings, R&D tax credits. Those are pretty popular these days. And guess what? They're there for you when you go through diligence a lot of people don't know this, but you actually go through tax diligence, not just operational kind of financial diligence, but you do go through tax diligence. So it's nice to have Vanessa Cruz on the phone with your VCs and with the accounting firm they hired to diligence all your stuff and the law firm they hired to diligence all your stuff. Vanessa knows what she's doing. She's done this a million times. And, uh, and not, it's not just Vanessa. We have a really great team of tax professionals that will do those calls too. It's, it's kind of sometimes the difference between getting around closed or having it take another two weeks because something was disorganized and the tax compliance wasn't done correctly. We hear those horror stories from clients that come to us. So, hey, if you want Cruise's tax team on your side, we're here for you. Check us out at cruiseconsulting.com. Thanks. Before we turn the mic on, you know, I was coming at this from like this whole like um, avoid risk, avoid litigation, you know, and you had an amazing point 
which what we kind of talked about make like the making more money aspect of it a little bit. We can talk about that a little bit more, but there's a third benefit to the institution for adopting fair play. And it's an employee one. Maybe share with what you share with the audience, what you're hearing from employees of those institutions that have adopted fair play. Yeah. So, you know, I think uh, fair lending 1.0 was don't, you know, don't inquire too much uh, into the fairness of your lending practices. Uh, if you do inquire and you find uh, there are disparities, sweep them under the rug or try to come up with clever statistical and legal justifications, you know, that, that legitimate those disparities. And I think the approach that we've taken at, at Fair Play, which we kind of call Fair Lending 2.0 is, uh, no, you gotta, you've got to look. Uh, and when you find problems, you've got to commit yourself very seriously uh, to addressing them. And what we find is not only do you make more money by doing that, uh, but you enhance uh, customer satisfaction, you enhance uh, brand reputation and loyalty. Uh, the regulators take a favorable view uh, and it helps you recruit talent yeah. because the smartest people today uh, want to work for and patronize institutions that reflect their values. And so we've had, uh, what we have found is uh, we sort of uh, sometimes glibly say fair play makes fairness pay. That's right. And I can totally relate to that because everyone in this day and age, especially like post COVID where you hear about the great resignation or people moving jobs or people, you know, I've really come to the like company culture, company reputation, the pride that people take in working somewhere is like, is so much more important than it was even pre COVID. And, and especially at a lending institution, this is like one of the biggest levers a lending institution can do to enhance the reputation and make it a better place for people to work. Like it's so much, it's so much better if your bank or, or, or community bank or credit union is on the front page of the Wall Street Journal because you've taken this new proactive approach to underwriting loans and you're seeing better results and you're, you know, improving all these people's lives than, than being like the working at the cigarette company, you know, I mean, that's just the, the world we live in. It's so positive. It's an amazing trend in our society. I'm, I'm very thankful for that. But like you, I mean, what a big lever you can help these institutions pull. You know, we, uh, we named the company Fair Play, uh, which is this phrase that came from a Frenchman named Pierre de Coubertin, who first used it when revi um, reviving the modern Olympics. And he, he said that fair play was the idea of uniting people to compete on a level playing field with a good spirit, with an attitude that displays excellence, respect, modesty, generosity, and friendship. Uh, and those are the values that we seek to embody at Fair Play. And they're the values that, uh, frankly, our customers choose us for. Uh, and it's not just because we're altruistic. It's because these institutions recognize what you said, which is, you know, culture, eat, as, as Richard Plepler, the former head of HBO, used to famously say, culture eats strategy for breakfast. Yeah. Right? Like, obviously, you need smart decisions and great execution. Uh, but the idea that like people at the top decide what's right and people at the bottom follow the leader wastes the enormous pool of talent and ideas and creativity and experience. Uh, and so, you know, if you want to win, 
you've got to make the invite the workplace and you got to make the products uh, safe and and welcoming to people. And if you end up trying to avoid speaking the truth to stay out of trouble, you actually end up getting into trouble. Totally. And I mean, you personally, I mean, your story about your mother and, you know, where your family's come from, and it's got to be like so rewarding. I, I would bet that, you know, there's a lot of people who work at Fair Play who've had similar life stories to you who feel that calling too. I mean, is that what it's like to like when you, you know, you have your, your pick of like the, or, you know, so many of the great AI and, and technology analysts in the, in the world, I mean, is it easy to recruit at fair play or maybe it's never easy, but like, do you find that sense of mission internally at your company too? I mean, what we're finding is the, the smartest, most talented people want to work on problems that are substantively interesting and change the world. If you yeah. get them right. Yeah. And you know, systemic bias is one of those issues, right? It's a, it's a persistently uh, difficult issue that we have struggled with uh, here in America. And, and not only that, but as you say, almost everybody has had some experience uh, with unfairness, either being treated unfairly themselves uh, or you know, seeing a loved one be treated unfairly. And, you know, look, if you just like read the zeitgeist a little bit, you know, society is demanding fairness now in a way that it never did before. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and consumers are, you know, uh, care that the businesses they patronize uh, are fair to their employees, their customers in the world. And so yeah, I, I, really I'm never saying it's never easy to recruit, but I think that uh, we've got a, a better uh, a, a better shot at it than, as you say, you know, the, the, the folks developing the next laundry delivery app or whatever. Yeah. There's another a flip side to what you said that I think it's equally powerful. And it'll be hard for me to articulate this, but it's not just looking around the world and seeing unfairness. I think many of us have experiences where we've seen something with like what you're building open up the world to someone who was disadvantaged or in a, in a not so great position or an, in an unfair position and seeing them flourish. And I go back to like my undergrad at, at Cal Berkeley where affirmative action was still in place. And, and I didn't quite understand at the time until I got there. And then people in my fraternity or in my dorm who came from just, you know, different situations, not, not as a cushy situation as me, frankly. And I saw them just their talent explode at, at Berkeley and be beyond, you know, go to like the best medical schools and the best law school, you know, and what and a positive impact they made on society all. And, and if, if we were not open to these types of approaches or alternatives, those people might be left behind and our, really our society suffers from that, you know? And so I think that's probably another aspect, you know, there's just so many, forget the unfairness, for, think about the potential of all these people who can be unleashed, and especially in like personal finance. That is like, it's so important. You know, you buy a house, you become a better citizen, you become part of your neighborhood, your kids go to school, better school. You know, there's so many positives with lending, you know, getting lending underwriting correct and unleashing those people. So I love what you're doing. I'm, I'm very, very happy for you. You're, you're very kind and, and you're absolutely right. I mean, I think credit is the sine qua non of modern life. Uh, and so helping lenders say yes to more good borrowers is just like gives more folks a shot at the American dream. Uh, and so what we find is that 
Uh, our customers inside of these financial institutions love uh, the ability to both contribute to their bottom line and to their communities in that way. Uh, and employees wake up every morning psyched to go build a product uh, that uh, you know gives more people a shot at the American. Yeah, I love it. Kareem, thank you so much. This is amazing. Tell Maybe you could tell everyone how to reach out to you if they're working at a financial institution or they're interested in working at Fair Play. Like how, how can they get a, in touch with you, especially maybe on the customer side? If someone's working at a financial institution and realizes they should be talking to you, what do they do? How do they reach out? Yeah, we, you can always find us at www.fair-play.ai uh, or info at fair-play.ai. We are uh, looking for anyone that wants to help us uh, build a fairer future. So please, uh, please feel free to reach out uh, if, uh, if that's something that's of interest to you. I love it. I'm a huge fan. Congrats. And I'm glad you kind of, uh, you took that leap. You know, you're building something that is going to be really, really important. And I can't wait. I know you shared with me the, the amount of customers that are signing up. It's a, it's amazing. So I'm, I'm really, really happy for you and, and best of luck. And I look forward to maybe recording another podcast, 18 months and being like, Oh my God, we've got 10 of the top 10, you know, banking institutions in the United States using us now. And what an what a incredible future. Well, thanks, Scott. Uh, your uh, partnership and support for the many years that we've been kind of toiling away uh, in venture-backed startups uh, has been absolutely essential to our success. We're grateful uh, to you and the team at Cruise, and uh, we love the podcast and love the work you do too. So thank you. Thank you, sir. And uh, give my best to your lovely wife, partner. Melissa is an amazing woman, and I really, really think she's just an amazing woman. I think very highly of her, and I'm very, very grateful we got to work together for, for her time. Thank you, Scott. Uh, she sends her best to you and the Cruise team. All right, man. Take care. Thank you. So when your troubles are mounting in tax or accounting, you go to Cruise. Founders and friends. It's Cruise Consulting. Founders and friends with your host, Scotty Old.